Welcome to the Partnership Economy. This podcast explores the power of partnerships through candid conversations with industry leaders. Join our hosts, Dave Yavano, CEO, and Todd Crawford, co-founder of Impact.com, as they unpack the future of partnerships as a lever for scale and an opportunity to put the consumer first. On this episode of the Partnership Economy, I'm super excited to welcome Aliza Licht. She is the founder and president of Leave Your Mark. It's a multimedia brand that's focused on career development, personal branding. I understand, Aliza, that you've got a best-selling book, a podcast, you got a community, including hosting live mentorship events. I saw that your book, by the way, is ranked in the Book Authority's 100 Best Career Development Books of All Time, which is pretty cool. And I understand it's also required reading at a number of universities. You've also been one of America's next top mentors by the New York Times and Business Insider's most innovative career coaches. So huge congrats on that level of recognition. Pretty amazing. Yeah, you've got, what, 20 years of experience in marketing and communications, cross-functional expertise and fashion, beauty. You're working with tech startups. You're heading uh, social media and brand experiences today. You know, what I think, and just in chatting with you previously, what's most interesting about your career to me And the place I'd like to start today's conversation is the work that you did creating one of the first major fashion retail personalities back in 2009, I think it was, Donna Coran's brand, DKNY PR Girl, as it was started on Twitter. You were one of the first people, I think, in the fashion industry to launch a social media personality on Twitter. Would love for you to kind of take us back to that time and just share a little bit about how that came about. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me on the show. I appreciate it. You know, it was a really different time. Now everything seems so 101. And of course, every brand is on social media. But in 2009, certainly in fashion, it was still a little bit like the Wild West. Every brand had a Facebook page that was... We all paid attention to our likes, right? But as far as Twitter, even though Twitter wasn't brand new, it was new in our industry. And in my role at Donna Karen at the time, I was the SVP of global communications, which means I was constantly thinking about what PR nightmare might happen. And when we were thinking about embarking on Twitter, my concern was, well, if the handle was at Donna Karen, who is a person and a brand, people would assume that she is speaking. And that then could become a PR nightmare because then who is actually writing that copy? So... At the time when Gossip Girl was all the rage, the original Gossip Girl, I might add, not the new one. And I thought, well, why can't we just make up this like fake character? Why can't it be anonymous? It can be represented by a fashion illustration and nobody would have to know who it is. And we can tell the story of both brands, Donna Karen and DKNY, through the lens of this person. And everyone was like, oh, that's a cool idea. Like, who is the person and like, what would she do? And I was like, well, I think she should speak through the lens of PR because we're the ones that are kind of like doing a little bit more of the glam work. We're working with editors at fashion magazines. We're producing runway shows. We're addressing celebrities for award season. Seemed like a really fun way to convey the brands in a very sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of way. I mean, again, I I definitely view this as like a fake personality. Mm -hmm. Of course, running all three, all ideas through legal, they were like, okay, great idea, but only one person can have access to this account. And Aliza, it's going to be you. I was like, okay. I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> so I log into this Twitter handle and like everyone else, when they first start on a platform, you sort of are like, okay, let me like say something and like see what happens. And so it began. And I very quickly started to learn the meaning of engagement. 
and what I would say that would then generate a response. Nobody knew it was me. It was completely anonymous, except for a couple people in the company. And because DKNY was one of the first in the space, it really got the attention of other people in the industry quite quickly. That point in time back then, and specifically what you did, I think was really the spark of what many are calling that that partnership economy moment right there. And for me, that's where brands are relying less on trying to talk directly to the consumer, even though you were. And then what the consumers really wanted was the real deal, right? They want to hear from others about what does this brand stand for? What are the trends and passion, et cetera? Really kind of opened up a conversation. It was that pivotal shift where I think Donna Crayon, and like many other brands up till then, was trying to talk directly to the consumer through the world of advertising and pictures and things like that, that maybe weren't real or authentic. And this personality that you had created started to open up a more engaging and authentic sort of conversation. And I remember telling me before about that meeting with your CEO, right, where you walked in and you started a conversation on Twitter. Do you want to share a little bit about that moment as well? Yes. But Dave, first, I want to just piggyback on something you said that I think is very right about authenticity and the conversation. Because my purview on Twitter was giving people a fly-on-the-wall experience. So actually giving people a view into the behind-the-scenes of what happens in fashion. So it was content that they weren't getting anywhere else. And it also was content where I wasn't trying to sell them anything. Going back to what you just asked about the CEO, you know, even people I worked with were like, what is this Twitter thing you're doing? Why are you doing that? What is it? No one understood. So one day, my CEO at the time, Mark, he was like, yeah, he's like, what are you, you're, you're Twittering? I'm like, I'm tweeting. You know, when people, <laughs> when people say it wrong, you're like, oh my God, that's like nails on a chalkboard. And I was like, yeah, Mark, I'm like, let me show you. So I pulled up a browser on a huge screen on the wall and I went into Twitter and I said, hey guys, I'm trying to explain Twitter to my CEO. Say hi and tell him what country you're in. And it was like hundreds of people across the globe. Hey, Mark, I'm in Croatia or wherever. And he was like blown away. He was like, they're just out there. And I'm like, yep, it's kind of like our own focus group. And, you know, that was the start of really building community for the brand online. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so in that sense, you were a creator yourself. You were an influencer, but just happened to be working for a brand. So you're really the perfect person to kind of shift this conversation to how brands should be working with influencers and creators. And just a level set before we get into that, I'll bring it back to that in a second. I think you and I would both agree that people are doing a lot of buying today. Like there's just a lot of consumerism, especially online. I think the pandemic just accelerated that even further. And I think my personal feeling is that a lot of people just want that dopamine hit of a package showing up at their door. But also with that, there's a lot of choice of things to buy and where to buy it. And so it's kind of created this whole new economy of commercial-based information that's being published by creators, by influencers, who really, I think, are at the tip of the spear of the information that consumers are after as part of their buying journey, I think a lot of it is because of what we just talked about, right? That degree of authenticity and transparency that you were kind of venturing into, but working for a brand. So having said that, how should brands work with creators, with influencers, just kind of understanding the difference here? They're not in full control of the message, right? In the way that we just talked about. So what are some tips that you have for businesses trying to engage with an influencer or creator to, to talk about their brand? So much to unpack and everything you just said. First of all, I just want to point out to everyone listening, 
In 2009, we didn't have the word influencer in our vernacular. We knew about bloggers that was on the scene at that time. But creators, creator economy, influencers, that didn't exist yet. So if you would have asked me in 2009 or even 2010, do I think of myself as an influencer? I'd be like, I don't even know what you mean. So that is in hindsight, that is retrospective comment because I certainly did not know at the time that that's what I was doing because it wasn't everywhere at the time. So when we talk about working in the creator economy today, First, I should say that I'm on the board of the American Influencer Council, so highly involved in this space, huge believer in its potential. And funny, today, I actually posted on Instagram a reel talking about this new makeup that I bought because I was influenced by this makeup artist, Katie Jane Hughes, Mm -hmm. and I didn't click on anything. I watched her video and I bought it. Mm -hmm. And that lack of attribution for that makeup brand, they can't show that I clicked because of Katie Jane. And there's a disconnect there. So I think high level, when we talk about how brands should engage with influencers, first and foremost, it's a brand awareness play. But just because someone isn't clicking in that second to buy something doesn't mean that they're not being influenced. Mm -hmm. And I think I go back to like my old days of marketing and we used to spend gazillions of dollars at DKNY on billboards or all around the world. And when you think about traditional media and you think about, well, what is the ROI of a billboard in Times Square? Like, what are your sales? We were never able to quantify that. But the digital economy is so quantifiable that we hold influencers to a higher standard. In a way, it's not fair, right? Because there's plenty of forms of media that you're doing because you know you're getting your name out there, but you don't actually know what you're selling. So I think... When we talk about working with influencers, you have to remember that you're working with the person, you're choosing the person because you like what they've done before. You're looking at their content and you're like, they have great photography or they're really engaging on camera. And you'd like to see your brand story told through their lens. What oftentimes happens is the minute the deal comes together, brands will be like, and this is how we want you to shoot it. And this is the caption and all of these rules and regulations where the creator starts to feel like, okay, well, do you want to just do this yourself? Because you have like really clear direction on what you want it to look like. So I think there's a happy medium there. So I think every brand has their guardrails, their parameters, their style guides, giving a creator a creative brief that explains the tone, the lighting, the way that you want the content to come out is totally fair. Letting them add their creativity to it is why you're hiring them. Mm -hmm. And then mutually aligning on a caption that is brand right, but also remains in the voice of the creator, I think is really important. Creators are really uncomfortable with feeling like They're being told what to say and what to do. And by the way, it also doesn't work for their followers because the minute you see that post, you're like, oh my God, this person is clearly so uncomfortable even saying all this. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's exciting about this type of evolution on how brands are trying to connect with the customer essentially is the customer is kind of the star of the show now, right? They're both trying to connect with them in the right way on the right level. I see the more mature brands realizing that they should take the handcuffs off, take the guardrails off, trust that that creator is connected to their audience and knows the right way to speak to them and engage with them. 
and giving them some latitude to do that. Maybe there's some guidelines, like you say, they're asking for certain things. You know, if it's a uh, sustainable brand, don't have this in your messaging or in, even in your background pictures. So, but like micromanaging what they're doing, go run an ad somewhere, right? This isn't an ad. It's a creator or an influencer that is trying to connect with their audience in the way that they know how. And I think part of that reason is some of the checks and balances that are just kind of inherently built into these social publishing platforms. Like they're going to get an unsubscribe. They're going to get comments that call them out for being a cheesy salesperson, basically. And so I just love it because I think the consumer at the end of the day wins. They get a better product experience. They get better engagement. They get more transparency on what's real and what's not. And this is the other thing that I think brands are realizing is that consumers will still buy even if someone talks about what they don't like about the product, right? Because that's reality. There are things that you like and don't like. Like not every product is perfect. It's kind of like the analogy that I think of is when you're standing in line at McDonald's and you're buying a Big Mac, you see it on the board and you see this picture of this beautiful sandwich, but what you get is this piece of crap. <laughs> it's like, like, this is what I bought, but like people just, they understand the difference between an ad and what's real and they want to know what's real. And they're still going to buy that Big Mac anyway, just knowing based on their prior experience. But you know, that's the part that I love about this is that I do think it ultimately leads to a better consumer experience. But I also wanted to kind of take it back to the two paths because you were touching on how brands are approaching creators or even vice versa because... And tell me if you agree with this. I see generally two paths to how brands and influencers are working together. One is where... That's kind of where it started, actually, in my opinion. Influencers are, are so like passionate about certain products and still are. Like they are just excited about this product. You know, we work with a lot of electronics manufacturers. It might be a brand new gaming laptop that comes out. So you've got this creator that's excited about it. They want to be the first to get it, review it, benchmark test it, talk about everything that they like and don't like, but comparing it to an older model. They want that social currency with their audience to be that first to kind of talk about it. And that sort of path, what we've seen is they may never talk to the brand. They'll just go grab their affiliate links, build it into the video description or their blog post, what have you. They're, they got Wirecutter, for example, that will do a review on those things. They'll just kind of grab the links. But there's another path that I think you were focusing on, and that is where the brand is pursuing the creator. Like There's something special about them. Maybe they've got the right audience. They've got the right style. They just got to work with them. And that's a bit of a different workflow. They may be paying them on a fixed fee basis. It's more on a campaign, like time-based sort of measure, if you will. And then you were hitting on, which I love, the attribution. Like, how do you measure the success of this campaign, right? Because it's not directly uh, trackable sale in most cases, right? But you know there's influence. So you're looking at engagement metrics and whatnot from how that creator is, is talking about your brand or your products. I see both those paths. And I think both are important because even those time-based engagements What's great about this creator economy is that this content will sit out there for years. And so maybe you're past the campaign. I feel that creators should get a residual compensation essentially for this great content that they're putting out there. And so maybe what starts as a campaign reverts to more of an affiliate partnership sort of commission on residual sales. Is that the way that you think of how brands and creators are kind of working with each other? Or is there anything else that you would say about that sort of view on, on how these guys are working together? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on definitely both paths. I would say the difference between the affiliate model and sort of casting talent to create content is the usage of the content, right? So if a creator wants to grab an affiliate link and, and wants to write about or review a product and will get a cut of those sales, that's great. The brand is not utilizing that content, right? That is the creator's mm -hmm. content and they're promoting a brand's product. 
if we're doing a talent partnership and we are saying, hey, we want you to create this thing, this video, we're going to use it a couple different ways. We're going to put it on our channels organically. We're going to use it for paid ads Mm -hmm. on Facebook and Instagram. We want you to post it. We're going to whitelist it and boost your post. We want to put it in email marketing. We want to put it on our website. Those are a lot of different levers Mm -hmm. that we're pulling and that we need to pay for as brands. So, and then understanding the length of time, which is really important in how I negotiate most of my contracts. It's like, here's the scope of work. What's your rate? Your rate is $4 million. Okay. Well, I need six month usage. Okay. Now your rate is $10 million. You know, okay, wait, what about one month usage? So you whittle away at the usage, you whittle away at the scope and you try to get to a number. And obviously I'm exaggerating, but you try to get to a number that makes sense for the end use. And I actually do think it's a great idea that you have about sort of the sales that come later after the partnership is over. I mean, the truth of the matter is if usage is six months, a brand cannot utilize that content anymore. It can remain up organically for historical purposes mm-hmm. in perpetuity, but it cannot be used in paid. But you know, if someone has an affiliate link and they're still people are still going back to that affiliate link and there's they're gonna still make money on that affiliate mm-hmm. link as long as it's a live right. link. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff sits out there for several years. You know, it's still relevant, especially when somebody has a um, I don't know if you'll agree, but I have a, a bit of analogy. I just came up with it today and talking with somebody else. So I'll just test it on you here. So I looked at kind of like these quick posts that some creators will do. That's not really tied to like a playlist or anything that's like building over time. It's just kind of a snapshot and it's gone. And so whether they're getting compensated for that in some form or fashion, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but it's gone. Then you've got other content creators that make an investment in their playlist, their video playlist, their blog, other content that they're creating. And the analogy that I was thinking of is like, I think of, those quick posts is kind of like renters and the folks that are really investing in their content library as people who have bought a house, right? And they're investing in creating more value in that house. And it's because I've seen it for myself. It's like when somebody has a long playlist on YouTube, let's say, and they're really, somebody finds them in some way, just one video. And then that takes them into this incredible library of related content. They're getting that residual. That's why I think that second path that I talked about in terms of allowing these creators to have residual income through these affiliate commercial links that that is kind of more evergreen is a really important strategy for the creators who own their house, right? It's less important for the folks who are renting because they just don't have that content library to to kind of go back to and have sustaining. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I think it's a great analogy. I'm going to steal it. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you attribution. Yeah, I slacked the my marketing team says I have a good idea for blog posts. Let's unpack renters versus uh, people. Who yeah, it's a great. It's true yeah. though. It's true. Yeah. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to learn more about how you can get the most out of partnerships, check out the Partnership Economy book by our very own host David A. Ivano. The Partnership Economy, which you can order at thepartnershipbook.com uses real-life examples from brands like Fabletics, Target, Ticketmaster, and Walmart to highlight the true potential of modern partnerships for your business. You said something that tactically I think is really important maybe to unpack. And it has to do with... Because I think not everyone's fully aware of this. It'd be good for you to maybe unpack it. So this is where creators are creating content, but then it's kind of licensed essentially to the brand. Like they're going to repurpose that content in a number of different ways. They're also going to boost that content. They're going to apply their paid 
to that creator content. Can you maybe just unpack that a little bit yeah. so that people can kind of understand how that works? Yeah, sure. So you ask a creator to make a video. And first of all, you're not just asking for a video, one video. You're probably going to ask for it a couple different ways. You're going to ask for it for Instagram, it'll be one by one. For YouTube, it'll be 16 by nine. For Instagram stories, maybe you want a 15 second teaser that's going to be nine by 16. So they're creating one piece of content and they're slicing it up in a lot of different ways for multi purpose use. So then when we think about, okay, what are we doing with this piece of content? So there are scenarios where brands will just ask the creator to create it and post it. And the brands themselves don't post it. It's strictly they're trying to reach a new audience. They're trying to reach, obviously, the creator's audience and see if maybe some of those people come over to the brand side. I don't usually do those deals. My deals are very, very sort of multi-touch point. So yes, I want to tap into the creator's audience. I want them to post it. But then I want that piece of content for my paid and organic channels. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, not all the time, I will also say, hey, let's test running their content as an ad on our owned channels versus putting paid behind whitelisting their content on their channel. And that's a really interesting test to see what the CPMs look like on their channel being boosted versus our channel with the okay. same exact piece of content. Very interesting. So maybe a follow-on question to that, like does size matter, like size of audience, the weight of influence that someone has, just considering that it seems like, well, I think you have a certain opinion on, for example, micro-influencers. So before I comment on that, I just wanted to let you maybe respond to that general question, does size matter in this case? I mean, doesn't size always matter in like everything? But I think you can do really well with a big influencer and you can also do really well mm. with a micro influencer. I think it comes down to what your campaign goals are. So if I'm looking for volume, let's say I'm launching a new product and I'm looking for a volume, I might say, you know what, let's tap 10 micro influencers and get our product in 10 different communities. And I like to think of them as heads of tribe. So finding a diverse group of creators that don't have audience overlap. So you're really hitting like 10 different communities, if you will, to be able to really spread your message far and wide versus one big one. Now, I will say that I recently did a project with a very big influencer where we built out not just... She didn't just create content. We built out a landing page dedicated to her tips. And we did an email and we did paid social. And it was like a really 360 campaign. When you're putting someone on your site and you're putting someone in email, this is a choice, right? But sometimes it does help to have someone with credibility for what they do. So this happened to be a makeup artist who does a lot of famous people. So when we're talking about like the five best makeup looks for holiday, she's someone who's very credible in that space. Mm -hmm. So people are going to listen. So I think it's a choice as to what your goals are. They don't always have to be big influencers. They could definitely be smaller, but you just have to think about what is the purpose of working with the person in the first place. Yeah. Also think of that. It was tying it back to our conversation about the boosting, right? The idea that a brand can push to, you know, they can pay to distribute it. So even if a micro influencer doesn't have a large audience themselves through paid media, essentially, the brand can still make it a big campaign. I think tying those two together could really, really open it up for creating opportunities for micros. Because to me, it's like, 
the world of partnerships for me is not the hashtag ad that Kim Kardashian is going to put out there. That's an ad in my mind, right? Especially when it's, uh, you know, she's promoting like budget cosmetics, you know, that's not, that's an ad. And so what's important is for brands to align themselves with creators that are a great fit for their purpose as a brand, for the products that they're selling, and maybe identifying those folks who are really good at getting behind the products in creative and interesting ways. And don't limit yourself to necessarily how their audience is, I guess is what I'm saying, is that the brand themselves can supplement distribution through the paid tactics that we were talking about. That's the only connection I was trying to make. For sure. I do think it's really important though for brands to analyze the creator's audiences before they commit. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of fake followers out there. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people (laughs) with big number communities and then the engagement rates are really low. So understanding also demographic wise, like if you're women's sports bra company and you go to an influencer who has an audience that's 90% male, I don't know if you're selling women's sports bras by booking Mm -hmm. that person. So really understanding the age, where they live. If their audience is in the UK and you're a domestic Mm -hmm. brand, I don't know, that's not going to help you. Mm -hmm. Also, making sure that the brand is really clear with the creator on what the disclosures need to be. A lot of people hate writing hashtag ad or hashtag partner or whatever it is. But really, if you're getting a brand deal, that's a sign of success as a creator. And also being true to your community and saying like, yeah, this is what I do for my job. I create content. I love this product and that's Mm -hmm. why I'm endorsing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really important too. Yeah. I think it's great to see this really form as an economy because seven years ago, these creators influencers were just doing it out of passion, right? Or their own social currency, you know, whatever drove them. But now I think a lot have realized they can actually make money on it. It could be a full-time job, you know, if they do it right. And that's what's exciting about how this is, this is all evolving. I wanted to ask you where things go next. You mentioned you sit on the American Influencer Council, the, the AIC. For those who don't know, it's a not-for-profit membership trade association. It, it talks about uniting the most prominent US-based social media influencers. It's a community. It's a think tank of digital entrepreneurs. You, know, you guys are driving creative storylines, all the success behind influencer marketing. What do you see kind of coming on the horizon? Or you know, We talked a little bit about some of the redistribution of content. But when you think of like features on some of the social publishing platforms or just techniques that brands are doing, what's kind of on the horizon for what's happening next in this whole industry? Metaverse. Metaverse. Okay. Yeah. Because listen, I mean, let's be honest. Talk about renting. You can add on to your analogy. <laughs> Creators are renting their audiences from Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. So I think that because they are renting it, the changes with the algorithms and the reach that someone is capable of is really scary for a creator. Like the day that Instagram went dark for eight hours, every major influencer who has built their entire career on Instagram was like, did I just get wiped out? Like Mm -hmm. it's that simple to just literally be a social media star one morning and then be gone the next Mm -hmm. based on the whims of the platform. Yeah. So we look at Instagram as a great example. It's like Instagram has fully deprioritized still images. They have prioritized short form video, vertical video. Mm -hmm. So if you're a photographer and all you do is still imagery, you're out of luck. You better go move to video or your stuff's not being seen on Instagram. So I do think there's something really exciting about Web3. And listen, Web2, I remember when social media was just sprouting and people were like, 
No one's going to do this. It's here today. It's going to be gone tomorrow. This is not going to catch on. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who were there in the early days, we were like, no, you guys better start paying attention. This is happening. That's how I feel about Web3. Yeah. So part of how I'm interpreting what you're saying is a focus on owning your own house, like owning the platform that you're publishing on, or you know, it's your audience, right? These are people who are loyal to you. You should be in more control over your content, that connection, not be so at the mercy, if you will, of you know, these decisions that, that some of these big tech platforms will make that affect your livelihood, essentially. Exactly. And exactly. And we're not just seeing it with influencers. We're seeing it with brands too. I don't know if you've heard of Telfar, the handbag brand. Mm-hmm. They're a handbag brand. They have Telfar TV. They don't post on social media anymore. They have their entire <laughs> own channel where they're controlling it. By the way, Leave Your More Community is on a platform called Mighty Networks where there's no mm-hmm. algorithm. Mm-hmm. If I post, people see it. Kind of a nice concept. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. I love hearing that. I feel like I could talk to you all day here. (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, I want to bring it back. Like, let's level it up a little bit here. I I love your passion and your experience and uh, career and dedication to mentorship, career development. If you were to think back to your younger self, right? What advice would you give yourself as, let's say, freshly out of college, entering the, the professional world? Definitely a lesson on personal branding. It's something that I'm really passionate about. In my book, I talk about, it's a fake term. I call it last name syndrome. I think for a lot of us who are Gen X, certainly, who grew up thinking that you know you get a great job, you really invest your time and your energy into that company, and you may stay there 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. I spent 17 years with Donna Karen. It was wonderful. But one of the things that I learned later on was this idea that you don't want your last name to be your company, right? So I was always Elisa from DKNY. And then I spoke to Virginia, who was at Vogue. So Virginia from Vogue, Elisa from DKNY. We became synonymous with the brands that we worked at and more particularly the status of the brands that we work at. So I think everyone who's younger, who might be listening to this, should really think about like, your God-given first name and last name, what does that mean or what can that mean in the industry that you work in? Because you're not going to always work for that company. And if you work at a really high-profile company and then you leave and you go work somewhere else, it doesn't mean you get the same response. So really making sure that your own name, regardless of where you work, matters. And it's something that I definitely learned early on, but it's something I never thought about until later. Yeah. I used to be a lieutenant in the Navy. And I think of your professional career as like doing a tour of duty, right? Your typical tour of duty is four years in the military. If you want to stay with the military, you're signing up for like another four years. And I've kind of always looked at it that way. I tend to be a... That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I think that's how people should think about it. And, And you should be looking to get promoted, but, you know, do a check three to four years, you know, by year two or three, you're doing a check. Okay. Is this an organization... Is the work interesting enough? Are the people that I'm working around interesting enough for me to sign up for another tour of duty? If so, like have a plan, have a focus and yes. keep rechecking. Because sometimes it makes sense to stick around a little bit longer, but you know, it all depends sure. on what Yeah, For sure. But it's more so I'm recommending that show your thought leadership on LinkedIn, put yourself in other places where people get to know you outside of just your day job. Yeah. Hey, I could tie that right back to what we were talking about with creators, right? Just taking more ownership over your house. Like, don't just rent if you agree with this, because this is your platform. But what I'm interpreting what you're saying is if your company is your last name, you're renting. You don't own your yes, house. You know? That's very well said. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. 
Well, Aliza, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Same here. Um, Same I want to thank so you fun. so much for taking so much time to share your amazing insights and incredible career with the Partnership Economy audience. Well, Dave, this was so fun. It was fun the last time we spoke too. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>